we'll get started. So um, Dr. Ayler um, uh, made a nice introduction. Um, so I'm familiar with everybody in the room. So um, I wanted to um, do this topic because I thought, thought it to be very relevant, uh, which we'll talk more about, and also interesting, and also personally something I needed to learn more about. Um, so the CDC is an excellent resource, uh, and that's the picture I have on the right. Um, uh, their handbook on the tick-borne diseases of the U.S. is very comprehensive and also um, very easy to access online and an easy read. So that was my primary resource for uh, my talk. So. Uh, we'll get started. So the objectives for the next maybe 40 minutes or so are the following, and I hope to relay that to you guys. So I want us to understand the relevance of tick-borne diseases and its epidemiology, um, what, learn how to identify common ticks and their associated diseases, identify preventative and prophylactic um, measures, and then we'll uh, review some 2018 Lyme updates and then finish off with uh, discussing kind of the future trend, climate change, and what role that plays. So um, over the last, I mean, even year um, or two, the, uh, there's been more and more headlines on tick-borne diseases and in pretty major um, news articles and journals. So, um, and the, the problem is that it's, it's on an uptrend, an uprise. So the number of reported tick-borne diseases has been more than doubled over the last 13 years. And the public health burden of tick-borne pathogens is very much um, underestimated. So for example, the CDC reports that maybe about 30,000 cases of Lyme disease occur per year, but they estimate that the true incidence is about 10 times that number. Um, and that's to various reasons, reasons whether it be per um, reported clinical history, um, diagnostics, I um, think they all play a role, but it's very much underestimated. So looking at, um, this is uh, the MMWR report from May 2018, and they were looking at the reported vector-borne disease cases from 2004 to 2016. So, and the, it included about 16 nationally reportable diseases um, during this period. And so that includes, you know, your Lyme disease, but also anaplasmosis, ehrlichiosis, babesiosis, all kind of fall into this. Um, what was interesting is that the number, like I had said, it more than doubled, and those are your actual numbers that they reported, which is 22,000 to about 48 in 2016. And then Lyme disease, of course, was the predominant one. So it made up about 82% of the tick-borne diseases that was reported. And this kind of shows you numbers-wise. So I'm only showing you guys the last three years, um, but uh, so you see similar numbers when you look at the total, um, but that's, keep in mind that that's you know, a decade later. So if you look back 10 years ago, that was about half, um, if not less than that. Um, and then your Lyme disease, of course, make up most of that. Um, so this is kind of a visual representation. Um, so tick-borne disease, which occur for, account for about 75%, if not greater, of your vector-borne diseases um, occur throughout the continental US, but you see the, the shades of blue that are darker are, of course, where you expect um, there to be more predominant uh, cases. So that's in your eastern part of the country, and then, of course, along the, um, some along the Pacific coast as well. Um, so the dark, darkest shades are where you have the biggest problems, and that's from 2016. So, 
the next few slides, what I wanted to go through was um, highlight where the diseases play a big role. Um, you're you're going you're to see a lot of overlap, um, but I think that's important to know when you're trying to figure out um, the most likely case um, in the patient that reports a tick bite. So um, the maps are all different colored, and then each dot represents one case. So this is comparing anaplasmosis and babesiosis, um, which kind of the babesiosis is more so in the eastern area, but you see that anaplasmosis can also involve your Minnesota, um, Wisconsin region. Um, and then Lyme disease, of course, is very, very much dense. Um, and that's in the same area, but if you see ehrlichiosis, it's kind of spreads more down south near um, Missouri, Arkansas, in that region. And then your rickettsiosis. Um, again, it's more in the southern to uh, mid-east area instead of northeast. Um, and then tularemia is very sparse, of course, but those, those are the regions that you would expect to see that. So before I go into, you know, the various uh, ticks and their associated diseases, I think it's important to know how ticks behave as vectors. So tick mobility is typically limited to its animal hosts. Um, they rarely cause sudden epidemics. So humans are typically incidental hosts. And their um, prolonged life cycle and widely separated blood feeds, blood feeding uh, limit the opportunities to cause pathogen transmission. So that's why we're not seeing huge epidemics. But, um, so for example, you know, you see Ixides scapularis, so that's your black-legged tick that um, uh, carries Lyme, and that's what you see depicted there. Um, it might feed on blood maybe once a year, um, but this is compensated by the the fact that it has broad host preferences and uh, ability of a single tick to transmit multiple things, multiple pathogens. Um, so, and then of course, as uh, we'll learn more about, um, that's your important vector for Borrelia burgdorferi. So uh, I thought this was interesting. So how ticks find their host. Um, so ticks are generally found near the ground in brushy or wooded areas. They can't jump or fly. Um, so instead they t climb tall grasses or shrubs and then wait for a potential host to come up and brush against them. Um, so when this happens, they climb onto the host and then they wander. They may attach immediately, but they can um, also wander around and find the ideal place for attachment. Um, so that picture right there is actually how they wait. So that bottom couple pairs is them latching onto the, uh, the you know, whatever shrub or grass. And then the top couple pairs are um, uh, waiting to at at attack or attach. And they also, um, they interestingly detect animal breaths um, and odors and even shadows at times. So um, heat, moisture, vibrations, all, they're all very much sensitive to that, um, to recognize their host. Um, and then we kind of talked about the other th points there. The, um, they prefer cool places, so sometimes they like to go near the ear, in, in like animals and pets near the ear, in the folds, so uh, popliteal fossa, like behind your knees. Um, so those are all very much places to check. So uh, this was in uh, experimental and applied acrology in January 2019, so very recent. Um, 
they were proposing that there may be a gender preference when it comes to ticket attachments. Um, so there, the study had male and female human volunteers, about 20, just 20 um, pairs. They breathed into opposite sides of this secured um, polycarbonate tubing, and that contained about 10 adult um, ticks, uh, the Americanum ticks, and the proportion of ticks that exhibited a host preference was recorded. And under controlled conditions, they saw that um, more significantly more proportion of the ticks went towards females, sorry to say, uh, than males. And it, they were, their hypothesis or things they were postulating was I don't, either the female breath contained components that they found attractive versus males that was um, repellent. But um, there's more ongoing follow-up studies to look into this. But I thought that was interesting. Was it an equal number of males? Yes. Oh, you male and female ticks? Or the, the female is usually the one that is a pathogen carrier. They're the ones that attack. So, so yeah, so females, yeah. Um, but yeah, but the human volunteers were even, of course. Um, so how diseases spread? Um, so typically, I mean, as we would predict, it's through feeding. Feeding's the primary way of transmission. Um, and depending on the tick species and its stage of life, preparing to feed can take anywhere from 10 minutes to about a couple hours. Um, so the tick grasps the skin, cuts into the surface, and it inserts a little feeding tube um, and with like a cement-like substance to keep it attached so it doesn't easily come off. Um, and then the saliva also has anesthetic properties so you don't realize it's on you. Um, so it's important to know that transmission can occur both ways. So the saliva um, can have, the tick itself can obviously carry pathogens that's transmitted into our blood and then vice versa. If the human host or whatever host has an infection, it goes into the tick and that's how it transmits it to the next host. Um, and uh, so it, and this occurs with pretty much any, any host that it has. Um, so the life cycle, and uh, we actually were discussed it briefly in the beginning of the lecture. So the uh, life cycle has four stages. Um, it has egg, six-legged larva, and then you have the nymph stage, and you have your adult. And this is from CDC, nicely depicts the uh, cycle. You have, typically in the springtime, that Dr. Taylor mentioned, is when the onset occurs, and um, that you know, the eggs become larvae and they have small animals that they um, can attach on. You see birds and mice and rodents. Um, and then the nymph stage is actually the biggest problem in Lyme disease. Um, the nymph stage is actually the predominant stage where we're at risk for um, infection. Um, after hatching from the eggs, the ticks must eat, have blood at every stage to survive. So the ticks that require um, like multiple hosts can take up to about a few years to complete their full life cycle. So a lot of the times they don't make it that far. Most will die because they don't find a host or um, for their next feeding. And like I had mentioned, the host can be a variety of things, mammals, birds, reptiles. Um, most prefer to have a different host at each stage, but you'll, uh, we'll talk about some ticks that prefer the same host, like for example, the brown, brown dog tick. Um, and then the What's depicted here is the black-legged tick, so that's your Ixides capillaris. So the, the three main ones I'm gonna talk about, and I think 
for our purposes in the scope of this talk, we'll focus um, on the ones that most commonly cause disease in humans. Um, so that's going to be your black-legged tick, your lone star tick, and the American dog tick. And then there's a couple I'll mention, but not kind of go too in-depth about. Um, so the black-legged tick, so that's the Ixidae scapularis. Um, so learn to identify kind of by how it looks. So you have the black and the brown um, uh, kind of two crescents. And it transmits the, the diseases listed there. So Borrelia, of course, and then anaplasmosis, Ehrlichia, Babesia, and Powassan. So this is kind of your major problem. Um, and the Ixodes pacificus is in the western states. Um, so that's the California region that was highlighted in the beginning where you see ticks. Um, this, that plays a role there. And the map um, I just included there so you know where you expect to see, see this. And, um, and just for, you know, for the talk, I, I'm going to list here the diseases, but not delve into kind of individually um, the clinical manifestations. So the, the black liquid tick, it's the greatest risk is uh, spring, summer, and fall. It's in the eastern U.S., like I said, and then all stages bite humans. But remember, the nymphs um, are, play a bigger role in Lyme disease. Um, however, keep in mind that adult ticks may be out searching for a host at any time winter temperatures are above freezing. So just because it's winter doesn't mean you're completely risk-free. And I included this for size. That actually is a corner of a dime, um, the, just a, uh, the bottom left right corner. But it tells you, kind of gives you an idea of how big these ticks are or how small, I should say. They're very tiny. So then you have your Lone Star Tech, and so that's the Amblyoma americanum. And that's very easy to identify uh, based on that marking on its, on its shell. Um, it transmits ehrlichiosis, um, tularemia, and then um, Heartland virus, and then Starry as well. So you have overlap. This has um, ehrlichiosis as well. And it's... Um, key thing to know about this tick. It's very aggressive. So what I mean by that is normally ticks wait around, like I said, and wait for the host to come. But these actively seek out hosts. Like they're just waiting to have a blood meal. Um, so all three stages, again, will feed on humans. And um, they readily feed on dogs and cats. So this is where pets become an issue. You have to really be careful. And it's similar distribution. But I would say it's more, uh, more so in the southern states. Um, than where you would see like the Lyme population. And uh, I don't know if how many of you guys have heard of this, but um, I think that's an important connection to the Lone, Lone Star Tick. There's uh, been uh, reports of red meat allergy um, associated with this tick bite. So the alpha-gal um, is found in red meats um, and it's also so, so associated with the tick. So these, these patients, they may not have symptoms until about three to six hours after the ingestion of the red meat, um, but they typically have the same kind of symptoms, you know, the um, sweating, rash, hives, um, all of that can occur, but it would be more delayed as opposed to like a food allergy where you'd expect it to be pretty immediate. Um, the, the adopting red meat free diets um, certainly allowed, you know, further anaphylaxis or issues. 
um, but the patient population that we're looking at, they followed up 18 months to three years, and definitely kind of keeping that out of their diet did help. Um, detailed history is key. So if they're coming in with these symptoms, then um, talking to them and seeing when exactly the tick issues occurred. Um, it's unclear why some people are more prone to this than others. I tried finding evidence-based studies for that, but there ha has not been established. Um, they s estimate about 10% of the population in the U.S. have um, elevated IgE titers against this alpha-gal alpha, alpha -gal component. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about with Lone Star is uh, kind of differentiate Lyme versus Dari, which is actually very difficult. There's clinically, they have very much similar symptoms. Um, this chart kind of just helps figure out if there are any discrepancies between the two. So the etiologic agent, of course, we know is Borrelia and Lyme disease, but Stari, it's not clear. We don't have a, 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 an agent. Um, and then the region, like I said, it's more southeast U.S. with Stari. Um, the vectors listed there. And then um, we talked about the stage, uh, stage as well. Uh, clinical presentation, they both have EM. Um, it can looking through kind of CDC's review of this, the staric, you can have multiple lesions, they're smaller, they have more of a central clearing at times, um, but, and then the, these patients are more likely to recall the tick bite versus Lyme. I'm not sure if it's, that's because Lone Star is more of an aggressive tick, um, but those are the kind of very faint differences that you see in history. And, um, but there's no link to chronic symptoms with stari, and then you have your, of course, the neuro and cardio and late onset arthritis, all that, with Lyme. Um, so the American dog tick, um, which is dermacenter, it transmits tularemia, um, and then uh, rickettsia, um, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and it's found in areas with little or no tree cover. So that's maybe a little bit different from the other ticks we've talked about. And that's how you identify it. So instead of a, like a white spot on its back, it's more of a curve or a, a little crescent there. And then lastly, brown dog tick. Um, it's found worldwide. I just included this on there it's, um, because I think things to know is the fact that it's a primary vector, uh, vector in the so southwestern US and along the US-Mexico border. And it also transmits Rocky Mountain uh, spotted fever. And then the dogs are the primary host for this uh, tick in each of its life stages. So this is one of the ones that stays with one host. Um, but um, I think more rarely can do um, humans and other mammals as well. This depicts the life cycle of this and kind of what I just talked about. So um, you have the, each stage, so the larva, nymph, in the adult stage, um, and each time they can either transmit um, to humans directly or more commonly via animals. And so moving on to kind of prevention. Um, so the, the common um, advice is to use the EPA registered insect repellents as you would do for mosquitoes. So DEET, um, um, picardin, and kind of similar chemicals, uh, repellents, um, would be definitely recommended for prevention. Um, so after arriving on the skin, uh, Ixidae scapularis, the Lyme disease, usually takes about 24 hours before feeding begins. So that's why we kind of 
get that in the history when we talk to the patient. And even if a tick is attached, remember that it must have taken a blood meal to transmit Lyme disease. And most of the time that occurs 36 hours or later after the tick's been attached. Um, so you wanna treat the clothing and the gear um, and products containing 0.5% permethrin, uh, treat your pets, and then um, you wanna use fine-tipped tweezers for removal. So that's depicted there. That's, a, that's the kind of the size of the tick you'd expect. Um, and thoroughly clean the area after. Um, a few words on prophylaxis. So uh, generally, it's not recommended for prevention with the following exception. So, um, you know, there's no antibiotic treatment that's recommended for anaplasmosis, babesiosis, etc. Um, and even in Lyme disease, except when you're in a highly endemic area, um, and they follow the criteria listed there. So typically the dose you would give is a single um, dose of doxy 200 to adults who are pregnant and to children older than eight years when you don't have doxy contraindications, obviously. Um, the attached tick can be identified as an Ixodes um, scapularis and the time of attachment is 36 hours or greater. And then um, prophylaxis can be started within 72 hours of the tick removal. So I think that's just an important thing to keep in mind so you know what patient fits the picture. And then tularemia um, is recommended, the prophy is just recommended mainly in lab exposures. So um, the doxy, again, 100 BID is the dosing here for 14 days. And um, ciprofloxacin is not FDA approved, but it is an option if you can't do doxy in these patients. So um, just some highlights and updates. Um, so over the, it's been a while since the first guidelines or the Lyme guidelines last came out, so in 2006. So we're anticipating the new ones to come in 2020 uh, winter in CID. So in the meantime, when I was doing my review, I did come across updates that was listed in JAMA in 2018. So just main points we're going to discuss in the next few slides. Um, so the first thing, they did mention Borrelia, Myamatoi, um, and versus Lyme. So the latter is actually a member of the relapsing uh, fever group. It can be dis misdiagnosed as Lyme disease due to false positive tests in your ELISA. Um, so I think that's important to know. Um, there are no diagnostic tests that have been approved for this. PCR testing has been proposed and antibody testing as well um, if you have, um, I guess, a suspicion. But like I said, it's very hard to diagnose due to overlap. Um, unlike Lyme though, these patients do not have a rash, um, but they do have uh, more systemic symptoms, fever, headache, sometimes just uh, myalgias, fatigue, um, uh, sweats, things like that. Um, it's transmitted by the same tick species that, um, as Lyme. You can have also uh, CBC derangement, so leukopenia, thrombocytopenia. And in these patients, you give about two to four weeks of doxycycline, um, and so similar management. But amoxicillin and ceftriaxone have also been used um, and have been of um, positive response. So then um, for Lyme testing, uh, I think that's a big part of Lyme disease. I think this, along with chronic Lyme disease, is kind of the biggest um, uh, areas of, uh, I guess, controversy or um, improvement, I should say. 
Um, so the current, I wanted to discuss the, what we're doing right now. So the right now, we do a two-tier testing for Lyme disease. So we have your first test, which is your ELISA testing. And if you have a positive or equivocal result, then you, look, you go to their symptoms. Has it been less than 30 days or greater than 30 days? That 30-day mark can tell you if you just do an IgG Western blot. So that's if they've had symptoms greater than 30. Or um, do you do both IgM and IgG? So you don't want to do IgM if they have been having symptoms for a while. Um, if that ELISA is negative, then you want to look at your alt um, diagnosis and look at other causes. Um, or if you're very strongly you know, still thinking about Lyme disease, then uh, convalescent serum where you would expect antibody titers to be high would be uh, recommended. Um, so the proposal, the recent proposal, has been to change the second testing instead of a Western blot to another ELISA test. These are easier to pre um, perform, results would be available sooner, costs would be reduced, um, and it would kind of eliminate that subjective element of interpreting Western blots. The specificity is greater than 95% for either. However, I think the major limitation that we have right now is and the main problem is testing patients with low probability and that changing that next second tier doesn't get around that. So I think that's what the debate's been um, about that. So, and this is kind of echoing what I had mentioned. So the common misconception is that poor sensitivity of antibody testing is major limitation, which is not the case. Um, however, for extracutaneous manifestation of Lyme disease, um, the sensitivity is very much it's excellent, so it's 87 to 100%. Um, and if you have early neurosymptoms, you typically want to repeat testing in a couple weeks um, to, to see if you have positive testing. Um, the issues, like I said, lie with inappropriate testing, not testing the right population, and then interpreting it incorrectly as well. Um, and just a side note, the Lyme arthritis, almost all patients with Lyme arthritis um, arthritis will have a positive um, IgG antibody. So you expect that uh, when they present with those symptoms. And if you test them and if they don't have that, then you, you're looking at something else. So then uh, some treatment updates. Um, the pediatric population, um, they, they approved, um, AAP approved a less than 21 day course of doxy in, in children less than eight years. So initially that eight year mark was um, more significant, but now they're accepting that for younger than eight years. And the doxy, when you would want to treat with that would be for a high risk tick bite where you're um, very much concerned of Lyme disease um, or Lyme meningitis or co-infection such as anaplasmosis. Um, but in other scenarios, if you just have EM and you want to treat that, amoxicillin and cefiroxime are as effective to treat. Um, additional data have uh, reconfirmed, which, you know, we, they looked at 182 patients with long-term kind of residual symptoms of Lyme disease despite being treated. <coughs> Further antibiotic therapy does not provide any benefit at all in that situation. Um, so the, the last segment I wanted to discuss was uh, kind of future trends and the impact of climate change on tick-borne diseases. So. When we look at the risk for human infection, there's three main factors that play a role. You have tick vector abundance, so how abundant do you have the, um, the vector? 
the prevalence of Borrelia in the ticks, um, and then the contact frequency between um, ticks and humans. Climate change, in some way or another, impacts every single one of these factors. Um, so geographic and seasonal distributions of Lyme disease are pretty much driven by the life cycle of vector um, ticks. Apart from the short periods of time where they're feeding, so that's like less than three weeks of their entire life cycle, um, they mainly spend their life off of hosts in various landscapes, right? So you have your woodlands, grasslands, um, so, and that's where weather plays a part. So temperature, precipitation, humidity, um, all can affect their survival and host-seeking behavior. Um, so with global warming, increasing temperatures and the st uh, changes in seasonal patterns are expected to result in earlier tick activity. So that um, this picture actually uh, does a nice job of showing you the life cycle, but also shows you um, the seasonal cycle. So that's, that's the green, orange, and the blue that you're seeing. And the dashed arrows show that you're gonna have an earlier onset, an earlier spring onset, and then um, perhaps a later fall uh, as well, making the tick period longer. Um, and then we also see effects, you know, going up north. So this is kind of showing you the number of cases. This is um, taken from uh, Canadian uh, community disease um, in 2014. Um, it was looking at the number of cases per year of tick-borne disease in 2012. I mean, as you can see, it may very much has an uptrending and an uprise. It's emerging in central and eastern Canada, so it makes you think there's contiguous involvement from the northeastern U.S. It's going, it's spreading up north, and this is a um, visual representation of that. So the map shows you the reproductive value of ticks in North America. So, for example, um, you you have the shading blue, light blue, and red. Um, the the numbers depicted with the with the colors there show you um, the predicted rate of population increase. So for example, if every parent had four offspring, the ratio would be two. So what that's saying is that in A, A B, and C are the time periods, C is 2041 to 2070. So this is looking far ahead. We expect there to be more involvement in um, Canada uh, with the blue. And then you also expect the areas in the south, um, the reproductive rate to be drastically higher. Your ratio would be up to 15. That red is, would be 15. So although that um, it would still be blue in the ca Canadian region, um, my concern, I guess, and the general concern is that um, ticks will become an issue up there and um, that will have public health implications as well. So um, I think the main take-home points I wanted to uh, relay was uh, the ticks can have a variety of hosts and harbor several, several types of bacteria. Um, identifying a tick can help narrow the differential, and gaps in diagnostics can delay appropriate management. I think there's more work to be done there. And prevention and appropriate use of prophylaxis is also a key component of care. And lastly, climate change will definitely play a role in distribution of tick-borne diseases and affect seasonal onset. Um, I think coming um, in the incoming guidelines that we expect in 2020, um, I would hope that they talk more about starry, differentiating starry versus Lyme. What do we do if in an endemic pop, uh, if you are in an endemic area where you have both? How does that change your approach? Um, 
and then uh, maybe t touch more on uh, non-antimicrobial modalities for chronic Lyme disease and how to approach those patients. Um, so those are all upcoming, hopefully. Uh, so this is just going back to my objectives, and uh, which we covered um, throughout the talk here. And those are my references. And that's all I have. Happy.